First Kings 18. I will be reading verses 36 to 39. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when, the, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Sermon series looking at spiritual power in a skeptical age. And right now we're looking at major events in Elijah's life and ministry um, to learn about spiritual power. And today's passage is, you know, it's one of the best stories in the Bible. Uh, It's the story of Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal, calling down fire to prove that the Lord is the one true God. And it's it's one of my favorites. Uh, But this passage can be hard because, you know, it's just so blockbuster summer spectacular, right? We can easily get blown away by the pyrotechnics and the special effects. Um, But there's a lot for us to learn besides the pyrotechnics. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to mimic what Dan did because I love the way he did. He handled the sermon two weeks ago. We're going to go through the story. And as we as we recap, we're going to reflect on three things. The nature of religion, the futility of idolatry and the problem of limping. Okay, so we're going to go through and look at religion, idolatry and limping. Um, First, let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would um, open our hearts to receive your word, to receive your truth, that we would be um, transformed and captivated by your um, beauty and goodness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so let's remember where we are in the story. So uh, a chapter ago, which is a few years ago in the story, Elijah had declared a drought because of Israel's evil. So King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they are the worst king and queen that Israel has had in its history um, by a lot. They've led Israel into terrible sin and debauchery, and there's injustice everywhere. Um, And they've instituted state-sponsored worship of Baal. So it's not just that they're ignoring God's command, but they're actively leading Israel to worship false gods. Um, So now Elijah has confronted Ahab saying, we'll see who's the true God. So just before this this uh, chapter, he tells Ahab, he says, you have troubled Israel because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So he says, now, therefore, send and gather the go to send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Right. So these false prophets, they go and they dine with the king and the queen. He says, bring them all. Bring Israel. Bring the prophets. We're going to Mount Carmel. So that brings us to today's passage. So let's see. There we go. Okay. 
So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So this is the accusation. You are like injured people, lamely hobbling, lamely limping between God and Baal. Elijah saying, look, you cannot serve God and Baal. You can't limp between two opinions. Only one is the true God. Whoever it is, serve him alone. And the people don't know what to say. So Elijah says, let me make it easier for you. Let's figure out which is the true God, okay? And then we, then we can figure out. So, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other, wood, the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God... And I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So this is the wager. Which God answers by fire? Right. If Baal can answer by fire. Great. But if it's the Lord that answers by fire, well, you better well worship him. And the people agree. Now, I don't know about you, but just a second ago, the people were speechless when Elijah confronted them. But now they think, oh, yeah, let's find out if Baal can answer by fire. Why not? You know, that's, that sounds good. And you might think that's crazy because surely they knew Baal wasn't going to be able to pull it off. Um, well, so back up. Baal was an agricultural god. So that meant that people thought he controlled the weather uh, to give people good crops or or bad crops. So the pagan belief back then was that every god had a region or an area or an activity that they controlled, that they overlooked. So there was a god for every location and there was a god for every vocation. Um, And so that's why Israel now could limp between two opinions. They thought, well, Baal's the god of agriculture and the Lord is you know, the God of the valley or the God of the wilderness, right? We met him at Sinai, which is, you know, back there. Whatever the Lord did, he didn't do what Baal did, right? That was, that was the thought. So they thought Baal would be able to send lightning to give fire, right? He, he did thunders and storms. And so actually asking Baal to send fire to the altar, it was like giving him the home field advantage, right? That's Baal's territory. I mean, his job was to send storms. And meanwhile, there hadn't been rain in three years, but, you know, any case. Um, so that's what we'll do. We'll see which God answered by fire, and that's the true God. And they say, okay, sounds good. And one more thing before we move on, because this will be important next week. Elijah says that he alone is left as a prophet of God. Now, that's not true, and Elijah knows that's not true. Obadiah has just told him that he has been saving a hundred prophets in two caves. Elijah's not the only one, but he feels like it, right? And this will be really important next week. Elijah has self-pity and self-importance. He's he's one of the greatest prophets of God ever, by a lot, for sure. But even he can lose perspective, right? Even he can seemingly forget who's really running the show. And we'll come back to that next week. 
Okay, so then Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, go first. When Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Well, this is how you get the God's attention. You cry out for hours, right? So, but for three hours, nothing happens. No voice, no one answered. So Elijah starts to poke fun at them, right? It's a little trash talk for the competition, right? Like if you're playing baseball, right? What, what, if you're in the field, what do you yell? Nobody? Hey, about, about, right, right? So he's going to, right? So he's going to start doing that, okay? So, and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he's a God, either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So Elijah is mocking the prophets of Baal with their own myths about Baal. Right? Elijah doesn't believe Baal is a God when he says this, but, but they do. So they believe that Baal would go on trips to the underworld. He would fight wars. He would visit the dead and return. Um, so Elijah's taking what they believe about Baal, and he's saying, what do you expect? You worship a God that wanders around and doesn't pay attention to you unless you get his attention. You worship a God that gets distracted from his duties because he's busy using the bathroom. You worship a God just like you. So keep trying. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. No voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Despite the fact that 450 prophets of Baal are going nuts. They're cutting themselves. They're crying aloud. They're raving. They are limping like lunatics, getting all, you know, they're in a trance-like state. That's this raving word. Trying to get Baal's attention and nothing. No voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So now I want us to step back at this point and I want us to reflect on what we've seen. What have we learned? What this tells us about religion, idolatry, and limping. So first, the prophets of Baal are the perfect example of traditional religion, pagan or otherwise. Because in traditional religion, you have to do something. Okay? You have to do something to get the God or the gods to answer you. You have to, to cry aloud and get all worked up like we see here. Or you might have to obey all the rules or work really hard or observe the right rituals. Or whatever the case, you have to be good and moral or do great works. Uh, you do something. You get Baal's attention and then he gives you fire or rain or good crops or uh, whatever it is. You obey God's rules, and then God loves you, and then God blesses you. Then you go to, to heaven or wherever the promise is. Right? And you might think, well, okay, that's very interesting. That's primitive religion. That's, that's how it used to be. You know, we've moved beyond that. Um, you know, not quite. We might not worship Baal or Zeus, but a lot of us, we have religion in our bones. So some researchers went around asking professing Christians 
what they believed about God and about salvation. Um, and they were shocked by what they heard. The description of God they heard, you know, it had almost no resemblance to the God of the Bible, actually. So they, they, the researchers summarized and they said many people, they believed three things. Okay, so first, God primarily wants you to be good and if you're good, he'll reward you. And God primarily wants you to be happy. And God's main job is to make you happy. And God is remote and he's uninvolved with the day to day. But every so often he shows up. Right. He might show up. Right. In other words, okay, God is moralistic. You need to be good. God is therapeutic. God's job essentially is to provide you divine therapy. Um, and he's deistic, right? So a lot of the founding fathers right, might remember that was their view. Um, deistic, a remote God. He's far away. He sort of made, made the clock and then steps back, right? That's the view. And, you know, you might wonder yourself, what's, I mean, a lot of this sounds kind of good, right? Is, is, is it? Well, it's, it's not, okay? It's not right. It's wrong. And let me tell you, if this is what you believe about God, then you will behave like the prophets of Baal, Okay? Because a remote God needs you to get his attention. He's like Baal, wandering around the universe, not paying much attention to you. Maybe he's busy relieving himself like Baal apparently is. He's remote. So you have to get his attention somehow. And you think the way you do it is by being good. After all, God is moralistic. So if things are not going well, right, you haven't had rain for three years or You've been single for three years, or your job isn't progressing how you want it to, or family life is hard, or health is bad. The problem must be you aren't being good enough. And so you might be tempted to make a deal with God sometimes. God, if I do this, then please heal my sick spouse, or give me a promotion, whatever it is, right? We make deals because God's moralistic. And if you think God is just a divine therapist, then when life gets hard and when you struggle... It's either your fault because you aren't being good enough, you haven't gotten God's attention, and by the way, if that's true, how's that going to help how you're feeling when, you know, nothing's going right, and by the way, it's your fault, right? Or you might be a little bit more sophisticated. You say, no, it's God's fault because he's too remote to do anything about it, which really leaves you in a predicament because what choice do you have there? And that's not a God that can transform you. Because after all, that kind of God's not so different from us. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Because this, believe it or not, is the water we swim in. If you believe in God at all, right, whether you're a Christian or, you know, you don't know where you are, you've almost surely been influenced by these beliefs, right? After all, it was Christians in the survey who were saying, this is what we believe. So, you know, we might be rock-solid, Bible-believing Christians. We might know that God is holy, just, merciful, powerful, a God of grace and truth, a God who is near, a God who transforms, a God who gives life. We might believe all of that, and yet we can slip into still believing, I need to get God's attention, I need to be good enough, and I'm not sure I can count on God here. But the gospel is not that God is a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God, that if you're good enough, you'll get God's attention and he'll make you feel better and warm and fuzzy inside. No, 
The gospel is that God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the God who is near, sent his son Jesus to redeem you. He lived the perfect life you should have lived, and he died the death that we all deserve to die to give us the life that is his. The gospel is that an infinitely holy God loves you and did all the work necessary to save you, to redeem you, to forgive you, and to love you. And he wants so much more for you than just happiness. And the gift of salvation is to make you like him. Holy, transformed, in perfect communion with the eternal God of perfect love and justice. Your good works aren't good enough. You need more than therapy. Only an infinite God of power can transform you. And the gospel is, yes, that God has done the work and is doing the work to give you what you truly need. So first we see the nature of religion. Second, we see the futility of idolatry. Because the prophets of Baal are not just a picture of religious practice. They're a picture of what happens when you worship anything besides the true God. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention, right? Because Baal is powerless. Baal couldn't speak or respond because Baal couldn't hear because Baal was nothing. And again, if you think this doesn't apply to us, we know Baal is nothing, um, then you're wrong. Idolatry is worshiping anything besides God. And that means a lot more than bowing down to statues. An idol is anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God does. It's anything that you, seek to, that you seek to give you what only God can give. Idolatry is, whenever, is whatever you look at and you say in your heart, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Idolatry is about what we seek after, what we long for. It's what we value above all else. But, Idolatry can be extremely subtle. Right? It could be what our mind wanders to when we have free time, when we're daydreaming. Um, right? Maybe you would never say, most of us, we'd never say, this is more important than God. Right? A lot of us, we, we at least know better than to say that. But why is it that's the thing we're always drawn back to? When we have a moment, that's what we think about. That's what our mind wants to return to. Right? Because somewhere we believe this is really the most important thing for me. And this is why, whether you think you're religious or not, every one of us has idols. There are religious idols, but there are irreligious idols. Right? So you might have walked in here, you say, I don't know why I'm in here. I've rejected religion, right? Because I know it doesn't work. I know the prophets of Baal thing. Good. Even so, even so you still worship. Right, Because when something in your life is an idol, you worship it. That's what it means. We love idols. We trust idols. We obey idols. Right? So we see this with Baal. They worship Baal because they trust Baal for good weather. And they cut themselves and sacrifice themselves to Baal because that's what Baal demands. But it's not really about Baal. Right? Nobody loves Baal for Baal's sake. Nobody you know, says, oh, Baal, you're such a wonderful God, Baal, you know, just your character and your person. Right? You bow to Baal 
Because what you really want is agricultural success. Your deep need is security. Your deep longing is for prosperity. Your longing is for comfort or for pleasure. And Baal promises to give them to you. But Baal can't deliver. No fire comes down. No answer. No response. Baal promises to give you what you long for, but Baal can't. Baal can only demand. The prophets cut themselves and rant and rave for Baal, and they get nothing. And the things we worship that aren't God, they can't deliver. Our idols similarly only demand of us. Whatever we look to and say, that's what I live for. That's what I need. That's what's going to make me whole. That thing owns you and it demands of you and it won't deliver what it promises. So, for example, some people, maybe nobody here, some people think career success will satisfy your longings. It won't. Right? But your career will demand more and more and more of you until it takes everything. Right? So longer hours, greater commitment. You must sacrifice your relationships for your work. You must sacrifice your children for your work. You might even need to sacrifice your integrity and your character for your work to make it. Your career will demand everything, but it will never deliver enough. And when you fail, it won't forgive you. Or despite what you think, romance will not satisfy your deepest longings. Because no person can fill the divine need for cosmic blessing, for cosmic security. And if you give any person that power, you will be disappointed when you find out that they're not perfect and they cannot be your salvation. But your drive for the perfect relationship that completes you will demand more and more of you until there's no you left, only the you that exists within that relationship with that other person. But that person can't save you and you'll be left longing for more. Comfort Pleasure, satisfaction with family, they're good things. But they will leave you needing more and more and they will demand everything for you, right? Or expressing yourself, you doing you, finding your truest identity, being the youiest you possible. It will leave you needing more and more and it will demand everything of you. And when you fail to be the you, it won't forgive you. Whatever it is in this, I don't even know. Because idolatry is futile. No voice. No answer. No one pays attention. Looking to anything besides God to give you what you long for. Meaning, identity, security, joy, purpose. Is as powerless and as futile as looking to Baal to send fire down. So that's the futility of idolatry. Finally, third, limping. Okay, so verse 26 says, the prophets of Baal limped around the altar that they made. Now remember, at the start of the passage, Elijah asked the people how long they would limp between two opinions. It's not a coincidence. This is really important. The people of Israel, in worshiping God and Baal, look just like these raving lunatic prophets who are limping around the altar. That's what Elijah is saying. Look, when we talk about the futility of religion or the futility of idolatry, it would be far too easy 
for those of us who come every week, to look outside the walls, look at people out there and say, they don't get it. Um, But the point is that this is what God's people look like. It's God's people who need to be reminded of the futility of false religion and idolatry. It's God's people, like the false prophets, who are limping around the altar that they made. That's why Elijah confronts all of Israel. He doesn't just say, bring the prophets. He says, bring all of Israel. And that means that we need to be reminded. Right, Christians, you and I, we can limp between two opinions. We can proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We can believe that Jesus alone is our Savior. And yet, we can limp between two opinions. Right? We can think, I can be a Christian and... I can be a Christian and spend all my time on Instagram coveting other people's lives. Tenth commandment. No, you can't. I can be a Christian and have my deepest longings be for comfort or sex or financial security or whatever it is. You know, we don't say I worship Jesus and this idol. We don't say that. But we don't need to say that. We can live that way. Right? We need somebody like Elijah to call us to task. So I'm going to do it. I'm calling you to task. Undoubtedly, there are idols in your life that are demanding your allegiance and you don't know it. I know because there are idols in my life. Right? Perhaps, perhaps you know they're there, but you don't realize that they have your heart and advice. You think you have control. Or you don't realize your allegiance to it how much it demands of you. Or, perhaps you're just blind. You just don't see. In that case, you need people in your life who can honestly, in love, point them out. So, who's your Elijah in your life? Okay? Okay. Back to the passage. Okay. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Okay, two observations. First, Elijah is deliberately evoking the unity of Israel. Right? The 12 stones represent the unity of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of God's people. So right now the kingdom is divided Right, ten and two, but God's promises for His people are not divided, and Elijah's hope is in God's promises. Second, Elijah's doing everything he can to make fire consuming the altar impossible. Right, so everything is doused in water, twelve jars of water. Right, the sacrifice is soaked, the altar is soaked, the trench around it is soaked. This thing is not going to just spontaneously combust because you know the dry heat. Um. And remember, there's been a drought for three years. So 12 jars of water, it's a valuable commodity. 
Elijah is offering a sacrifice that's way more valuable than just a bull. And also, he's really trusting God to provide here. Because if things don't go so well and he's just dumped 12 jars of water, you can imagine how this could turn out. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Notice the difference between false religion and biblical religion. Elijah doesn't do anything. He's simple. He's direct. He doesn't cry aloud and jump and dance. He doesn't cut himself and rave to get God's attention. He doesn't need to act to get God, to move to get God to act. He doesn't need to move God. He simply asks God to do what God is going to do. Notice he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Elijah knows that his relationship to God, that Israel, the the nation's relationship to God, depends on God's promises, right? He's evoking God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that he would be their God, that they would be his people, right? God promised to bless them and make them a blessing, right? The history of God's relationship with his people starts and is sustained by God's promises. So... Elijah approaches God based on his promises. That's what this Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Israel is about. And notice, Elijah says, let them know I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. What's that about? Elijah's saying, look, I'm just doing what God told me to do. I'm not forcing God to act here. I'm doing this because God has already told me that God will. Elijah doesn't need to get God's attention. God got Elijah's attention and told him what to do. Elijah doesn't need to do anything to get God to act. God told Elijah what he'd do. And Elijah is responding to what God already did. And Elijah is not crying out to a remote God who might not hear, who might be busy on a journey or, you know, being busy, whatever. Elijah prays to a God who is near who has already promised to be God to his people. But also notice what Elijah asked God to do. Why does Elijah want God to answer? All right, so first and most obviously, he wants the people to know that the Lord is God. All right, that's what the whole showdown is about. The Lord is God, not Baal. But also, he wants the people to know that God has turned their hearts back. Right. You see, remember, with traditional religion, it's all about you. You get your act together. You live a moral life. You follow the rules, obey the rituals. You fight for justice, whatever the cause, whatever the case is, you do it. You get cleaned up and then you can go to church. That's traditional religion. If God blesses you, it's because you did your part. So in other words, you turned your heart. If you were wayward and you start to be good, you get on the right track. You turned your heart. But that's not biblical religion. God turns their heart back. God does the work. So, 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So we get our pyrotechnics. So God can throw fire down from heaven. Good. Unlike idolatry, which is powerless and can't deliver on its promises, God delivers. God sends fire. And enough fire to lick up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, the water in the trench, right? The whole thing. There's no doubt that God has just answered and answered in a really big way. And the people respond, the Lord, he is God. Right? So remember, Elijah said, God has turned their hearts back. I mean, you know, we could easily look at this and we could say, the people turn their hearts back in response to God throwing down fire. And, you know, yeah, of course, there, in a human sense, that's certainly true. Right. But ultimately, God turned their hearts. Elijah even said, you have turned their hearts back. Right. When God determines to turn your heart to him, it's as good as done. We can speak in the past tense. Yes, you make a choice. Yes, you decide to follow him and you must do this. Yes, you have to believe and declare the Lord. He is God. But you wouldn't ever do that unless God decided to turn your heart. And it's on the other side of those proclamations and confessions that you look back and you say, yeah, I said that, but God had done something way before I started. And the good news is he does. When God turns your heart, you don't limp anymore. Not like this. Not like Israel is doing here. When God makes himself known to you in such an irresistible way, we go from limping to following him with all of our heart. Yes, we still struggle. We still fall. But God promises that eventually we will cease to limp after idols. Now, I want us to zoom out from this passage to conclude. Because the people of Israel have just responded, right? They've repented. They've turned to God. But not all is well for Israel. Not everybody sees the fire and turns to God. We'll see that next week. And even among those who do turn, they continue to disobey God, to be ensnared by idolatry. Right? Fire falling on that sacrifice didn't forgive, them sin, didn't forgive their sins or give them power to obey. And, you know, fire miraculously falling from the sky right here, it wouldn't be enough to set us free either. Right? We need more than fire coming down on Mount Carmel. But fortunately, the fire on Mount Carmel points to two better events. So first, centuries later, on a different mountain, God would send his son Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice to bear the totality of God's judgment on sin. God sent down something more than fire on a sacrifice. God sent his wrath on himself. The bull Elijah offered didn't procure total forgiveness of sins for all people, but it pointed to the sacrifice that would. Because Jesus took God's wrath on the cross, if you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You will continue to fail, but your failures don't define you. Your failures don't define you. You're forgiven by the miraculous work that Jesus did on your behalf. Second, at Pentecost, 
Jesus sent the Holy Spirit upon the disciples like tongues of fire coming down. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And God sent down fire on his people and the world has never been the same. Right? Because that fire turned the whole Greco-Roman world upside down and to Jesus. But it wasn't just the event of fire coming down. Right? It wasn't witnessing a miracle that day at Pentecost that changed the world. That fire, the Holy Spirit dwelling among the early church, produced a community of such beauty, love, such commitment to truth and justice and mercy that the world was drawn to it. The disciples became courageous, generous, and radically transformed. They are not the same picture that we see beforehand. Right? And the world wanted what they had. And the good news is that fire is for us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, with the God who answers by fire, let's be the kind of community that transforms this region. Right? Let the powerful, personal presence of God make this community a community of goodness beauty and truth and grace. And let's offer the fire of God to those around us. Let's pray.